This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Yesterday, the Ontario Liberal government released its fall economic update. Uh, we talked to Vic Fidelli, the PC Labour critic. Let's bring in Peter Gray, a prof- uh, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So how is this, uh, I guess, uh, fall economic update resonating with Ontarians, especially in regard to small business and the increase in minimum wage? Is this going to be enough to get Kathleen Wynne re-elected? Uh, probably not. Uh, but, I mean, I think if you were uh, Kathleen Wynne, uh, what you saw on that update yesterday is probably very good news in the sense that the uh, economic forecast for the coming year is uh, improved in terms of rates of growth, and so we could be as up as high as about 2.8% economic growth for the year, which uh, is going to mean also a growth in tax revenue. So if she wants to, at the same time, uh, balance a budget for the first time in a decade and be able to uh, you know, make uh, things that may be elect- uh, a bit electorally appealing, I mean, certainly this uh, decision to reduce the small business tax rate, I think, is an attempt to try and have all the uh, support from the minimum wage increase uh, without getting as much flack from the small business sector. Uh, you know, so she has room to be doing these kinds of political maneuvers to, to help with her re-election. So I think uh, for Kathleen Wynne, uh, the economy is turning the right way for her election plans at this stage. And what about small business and, the, uh, and tax relief? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, one thing that a small business uh, tax rebate does is help uh, rich people who've incorporated and mm. <laughs> used it as a tax dodge. Mm. So as a way, I mean, it's an expensive way to deal with people who do have to pay a slightly higher wage to their employees. Um, uh, so in that sense, uh, it probably will be of some small assistance to small business. I suspect the hiring subsidy that they also uh, offered at the same time may be more significant in the capacity of helping small businesses hire people. Um, but, uh, you know, at the, the end of the day, it's probably a, a not the best use of the public's money. Uh, it might be better, in fact, to just go ahead with the minimum wage increases promised. Uh, here's what Keenan Loomis uh, from the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce had to say. There will be $6,000 in extra cost per employee per year. So that 1% drop is only on the first $500,000 of income. So the maximum amount that this is going to return to small businesses is $5,000. So it doesn't even cover the full costs uh, associated with one employee. Uh, just fear-mongering, Peter, or will there be job loss? Well, I mean, we've seen a bunch of different studies come out. I mean, in the states where we've seen uh, more movement on the minimum wage in recent years, uh, uh, the research results have kind of changed in the sense that in most cases they say there will be uh, pretty small uh, or insignificant changes in employment levels. Uh, most of the reports we've seen that have been the most scaremongering, uh, such as those coming out of the Chamber of Commerce, you know, they say there will be 178,000 fewer jobs. Uh, but in fact, that means, uh, in their view, actually, not that there will be job loss so much as slower job creation going forward. Uh, you know, again, the results from the states uh, seem to be a bit less conclusive on this point. Uh, you know, at one point when uh, people working minimum wage jobs were mostly teenagers, uh, there was a, uh, a reasonably, you know, a 10% increase in the minimum wage might mean a, a 1% or 2% decline in, in employment. But now that we have about 80% of the minimum wage workforce being over the age of 20, so it's a slightly different relationship to the, to the labor market, uh, the results seem to be much smaller in terms of employment loss. So, I mean, clearly there is a cost uh, that goes to business. There's a lot of costs that go to business. Uh, and so, 
you know, these have to be kind of uh, worked out. I mean, the fact that the Canadian dollar is at 80 cents rather than uh, 100 cents American uh, is, you know, for many uh, firms who are exporting, for instance, I mean, that's a 20% increase in their uh, in their margin, if you like, or their competitiveness. Uh, so in, in a way, this uh, minimum wage increase is coming at a good time in terms of uh, businesses having a bit reduced pressure on their cost structure from the decline of the Canadian dollar. Are there other ways to go about helping small business that um, could avoid this, um, um, I guess, challenge? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a challenge on the cost side, but, uh, you know, at the same time, it's more money in the pockets of people who are buying things from those businesses. And I think that's why, I mean, it makes sense if you're a small business person, you realize what's going out every month in terms of your expenses, and you see that coming, and you say, yeah, that's a lot of money, and in some cases, it's happening relatively quickly. And so that, I mean, has been part of the argument, too, from the Chambers of Commerce, that it should have been phased in slightly more slowly. Uh, But what you don't see in the planning is, well, what's the impact in terms of your sales? Uh, or what's the impact in terms of your ability to put your prices up because people are earning more? And so, uh, you know, that, again, that's, I think, one of the reasons why employment-wise uh, the experience in the States has been close to a wash uh, because while the, you can see the costs up front, you maybe don't see the benefits, uh, but uh, presumably in most of these American cases have arrived. Why now? Why all this now? I mean, we've got a government here that's been in power for almost 15 years. Well, I mean, clearly Kathleen Wynne is seeing this as a way of uh, ensuring her re-election. I mean, uh, her strategy has always been to try and federate uh, uh, all the Liberal and NDP vote that she can against the Conservatives. Uh, You know, as a government that's been there for a long time, uh, in a way, she has to do something bold. And so this move to the $15 minimum wage strikes, you know, uh, strikes uh, that sort of chord. Of course, I mean, it's less bold than it was because there's a lot of places in the United States where they've been moving in this direction. We see other Canadian provinces moving to bring their minimum wages up to similar levels. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, it's a bold move, but it's not as bold as it might have been. I think it also reflects that we have a problem uh, of stagnant wages and of a, of a large part of the labor force that's working full-time, full year, uh, but really achieving pretty much poverty wages. And so, you know, what's the question about how one gets out of that? Some of it may be doing forms of income supplementation through, you know, working income tax benefits or child tax benefits uh, where, you know, it it increases incentives to take low-wage jobs and you get the supplementation. But some of it, too, has to be uh, getting the minimum wage up. Is all of this uh, wish list helping Kathleen Wynne? Recent polls uh, have showed Patrick Brown and her getting closer together. Obviously, uh, in the summer, there was a lot more separation. How do you read that? Well, I mean, I think typically uh, the minimum wage, increasing the minimum wage is popular uh, electorally. And so I think it has helped. Uh, I mean, it gives her a big, bold idea that she can say, this is what I'm working for. It's not always clear, really, what Kathleen Wynne, you know, has been trying to accomplish since she's been elected, in part because of the emphasis on balancing the budget without it, without uh, greatly increasing taxes. Uh, she hasn't had a lot of room to uh, do much bold. So I think this is uh, her attempt to really have something that she can hang on to. I mean, I think she's casting around for a variety of other things to put in front of different clientels. I mean, so for Franco-Ontarians, there's a talk of a French, you know, a French language university. Uh, there's talk about doing things in the social assistance system. There's talks about housing. Uh, so, I mean, I think there's an attempt to, to put bold things in front of Ontarians. Uh, I think it's meant she hasn't gone down further in, in popularity. Uh, it's not clear whether it's still enough to overcome 
a certain cynicism with respect to her government. I mean, these things can be promised, but as you know, she's been there for 15 years. There's other reasons why people are a bit cynical about her. It's hard to know whether it will be enough, but certainly she isn't quite in the doldrums where she was, say, six weeks, uh, six months ago. Uh, you talked about bold policy, bold programs. Many would have said the Green Energy Act was that. Uh, yes, it was. <laughs> it was. Uh, I mean, in parts of it, uh, it never came to be because they were struck down uh, by the World Trade Organization. So, I mean, I think it was going to be a sort of bold industrial strategy for Ontario. Turned out that we didn't have the capacity to do that uh, on the one hand. And I think, you know, in other ways, uh, there was a move on certain segments of it, which were probably, uh, you know, not the wisest use of uh, Ontarians' money. Um, but, I mean, uh, you know, Ontario is still stuck in a position, and, and we're in a, a place where none of our three parties, I think, are really promising uh, a, a credible solution for, well, where does Ontario go economically? Our manufacturing sector has really been hollowed out, uh, you know, since uh, maybe the past 15 years. Uh, so where are the jobs coming from in the future? I mean, some of them are in the financial sector in Toronto, which is doing well. But, uh, you know, the, there's, there's not that many jobs there. And so how do we spread the wealth or develop other sources of wealth in this province? I don't think Kathleen Wynne has an answer since the Green Energy Act, but I'm not sure that just cutting government and taxes is going to do it, as Patrick Brown says we should. I really don't know what Andrea Horvath, uh, what her, her strategy would be for creating a different economy. So, in a sense, Ontario is in a tough place where we just kind of bounce along, but there doesn't really seem to be a vision of where we go next. Peter Grape has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's uh, talk Donald Trump and all things United States. Uh, North, uh, Northern Korea, sorry, North Korean, uh, North Korean media have sentenced Donald Trump to death. First of all, I didn't realize there was a North Korean media. I thought that was just him. Isn't it? Isn't it such sort of an outlet for? Isn't it sort of an outlet for uh, Kim Jong Un? Hard to tell. Uh, let's talk about that and Jeff Sessions and, of course, impeachment, uh, which is being talked about again. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to The Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure as always, Scott. So, uh, sentenced Donald Trump to death. Uh, the media said this, not Kim Jong-un. What's the difference? Not a whole lot, quite frankly. North Korea, they do actually have a state media-run media service. It does exist, but yes, it's run at the pleasure of the dictator, so to speak. So the language that comes out from North Korea has always been kind of interesting over the years. Um, many of the, the previous leaders, that being Kim Jong-un, who's the current dictator, his grandfather Kim Il-sung, his... Uh, his father, Kim Jong-il, were all associated with various things. You know, they, they rewrite history quite often in North Korea. North Korea apparently participated in the Olympic Games that they never attended and yet finished first overall. There was some line, if you may remember, that came out about a year or two ago that I believe it was Kim Jong-il actually was the person who discovered how to make the hamburger. He came up with that concept. Mm. It's just a load of nonsense that they bring out. So now they come out with a line saying that as terrible as Donald Trump has, a has acted, as horrible as he's treated our leader, et cetera, et cetera, he should be sentenced to death. Nobody is really paying that much attention, quite frankly, Scott. Nobody pays a lot of attention to North Korea's quote-unquote threats. But yes, it's on the record. Yes, the media will talk about it for a while. But 
it doesn't mean anything one way or the other. I mean, this matter with North Korea's nuclear threat has to be resolved one way or the other, and these little silly threats that the North Koreans throw out to kind of deflect attention away from an important issue and try to sort of make it about themselves is only going to last for maybe a day or two in the news cycle. Why this now? I mean, they were noticeably quiet during his visit to Asia. Why all the rhetoric now once he's gone? Well, I think it's because it's over. I think they wanted to actually see what happened during the Asia trip before they made this sort of, shall we say, silly announcement. Um, they wanted to see if Donald Trump was well-received in Asia, which he was by, by and large for the most part. They wanted to see how his uh, speeches were handled, uh, if he made comments about North Korea, when he actually addressed them in speeches and so forth, what, how the other countries reacted and how other world re- leaders reacted. And what the North Koreans probably noticed, because although it is a communist country, they do get TV, and some of them are able to keep up with the news quite easily, including Kim Jong-un, their dictator, um, I think they realized that, generally speaking, when Donald Trump spoke about the North Korean threat and talked about nuclear weapons and how terrible their country was, he mostly got cheers, which obviously shows the North Koreans that, one, They've always felt isolated in the world for the most part, with the exception of China and a few other countries. Now they should have reason to feel isolated. And B, if Donald Trump was hoping to curry world favor in terms of fighting back against North Korea, he is clearly winning. So they waited till the trip ended, which it just did, and then issued this threat. Does it mean anything in the grand scheme of things? No, but it's the only way for the North Koreans to at least change the narrative at home being uh, or moving it away from, say, an anti-North Korean mentality in their little world, so to speak, back to a pro-North Korean mentality where they, quote-unquote, have the upper hand. How much would the citizenry of North Korea know about Trump's visit? That's a good question. You know, based on the fact that North Korea withholds a lot of information via news services, and there's not wide, you know, widespread uh, access to the Internet and various other things, it's quite possible, and this has been the history with other communist nations in the past, including China, for example, and the old Soviet Union, where a lot of the information sort of came in in dribs and drabbles to the wealthy or to the elite or to the political class, but everybody else was left in the dark. What I would say with North Korea is... As time goes along, people are finding ways to finally get news. Maybe not on a daily basis, maybe not on an hourly basis, but on a weekly basis. It might be capsulized. It might obviously have a bit of a state influence on it and interference in terms of the way they actually bring out the news or discuss a particular issue, be it on politics, be it on, um, say, Japan-North Korea relations, be it on international trade, etc., But one way or the other, I think that the North Korean masses are getting more news coverage now than they ever have before. And if there is going to be dissent against Kim Jong-un and his regime, which is extremely powerful right now and probably would be almost impossible to topple, the only way it's going to happen is if there is this saturation of news, if we're able to learn more about what's going on outside of the North Korean perimeter and how the rest of the world perceives them. The vast majority, I agree with you, Scott, probably have no idea about that and probably just think that Donald Trump is Satan. But then again, he's thought of as Satan in his own country, too, by hmm. some people. So I guess that's not terribly unique. 
But I think that as more and more North Koreans learn about the world around them and become more inherently curious about the way the world works outside of the North Korean border, I think you'll find as time goes along, they'll crave more news and there'll be more dissenting opinion, which is healthy by and large. Are you surprised they didn't test a missile while Trump was there? Uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people suspected that they would or predicted that they would. I agree with you. You know, when, hindsight is twenty twenty. If you had asked me at the beginning of the trip, I would have said, yes, I think the North Koreans probably want to flex their muscle. It may not be a massive blast, but they're going to make maybe a small test to see what happens and see what world opinion is like. But now, after the trip is over, it was probably to their advantage not to do so, to let Donald Trump go through Asia, see what the reaction was like, and then when he left, you can then start up as you see fit. Yes, it would have had some impact or a lot of impact in the West anyway if they had done it while Trump was in Asia, but it will still have impact while he's gone. So in the end, ultimately, I don't think it matters too much. All right, let's move on to U.S. Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions, uh, of course, uh, now uh, testifying, says he recalls a meeting with then-candidate Donald Trump and aides in connection to uh, Russia uh, that they were discussed. Here's what he had to say uh, yesterday. In all of my testimony, I can only do my best to answer your questions as I understand them and to the best of my memory. But I will not accept and reject accusations that I have ever lied. That is a lie. Uh, Where is this all going, Michael? (laughs) That's a good question. We're only in day two. I'm not quite sure myself. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, the, the problem that Jeff Sessions has of which many members of Donald Trump's cabinet have had in the past and still have in the present, is that they have a president who uh, likes to go off on certain tangents, shall we say, and they have to follow along with them or else the narrative gets splintered in all these different directions. With that in mind, it then becomes very difficult for certain people, including especially Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, to keep up with everything. And sometimes you're creating a particular narrative, Donald Trump will go off, as I said, on a tangent in another location, and then the narrative has to sort of either follow him or move away from him at the same time. It's, it's a very, very difficult balancing act. In terms of Jeff Sessions, as the Attorney General, look, he obviously wants to defend his good name. He's been around in politics for decades. He was a very successful Alabama senator. He had a reputation long before he became one of the most prominent GOP members to endorse Donald Trump very, very early on. As well as Attorney General, I think he's quite happy in the post. He enjoys the exposure. I don't think he wants to leave anytime soon. So he has to have a bit or create a bit of a balancing act between what he knows what he experienced, what he saw, and what he tells others. Now, is it lying or is it not lying? The problem that we have here is that some of the comments that were made yesterday, for example, don't seem logical, especially the case that now, you know, with this fellow Carter Page, who's been in the news for a bit, Mm. as possibly having some relation with Russia. First, Jeff Sessions said that, well, he never really knew Carter Page and never knew about this meeting. Now he seems to remember some sort of a discussion, like he's had this epiphany, and all of a sudden he can now spout off about things like this. This is driving... Democrats and some Republicans nuts because you have your attorney general who, yes, he's not going to remember every little factoid he discussed with everybody. He's not going to remember every nuanced 
word that he said during a conversation, but they expect him to know the general themes, to have some knowledge of who he did or did not speak to. And every time he comes out and says, well, now I recall this, or I'm answering questions to the best of my ability as I remember them, it just doesn't give people, the American people, mm. a lot of confidence in their government and, quite frankly, a lot of confidence in their attorney general. So for Jeff Sessions, what to make of all this? I think, unfortunately, it's just going to be more and more difficult the longer he sits there. And, unfortunately, you're going to find that some of the stories we hear over the next couple of days are going to be very, very different than the ones we were listening to Day a few months ago. Now they're talking about dropping him in to replace Roy Moore, who yep. is the Republican Senate, a Senate candidate who's uh, now found himself in hot water with allegations uh, of sexual abuse and such. Yep. Uh, this, do you, this is just absolutely bizarre that he may end up there, do you think? Well, look, there have been write-in candidates who have won in the past. Mazgursky um, won actually in, um, in Alaska. I mean, there are examples of it happening. The problem is, and you know, I assume your listeners are aware or familiar to some extent with Roy Moore. This is the Alabama Senate candidate who mm-hmm. won the GOP nomination over Donald Trump's chosen candidate, that being Luther Savage. And unfortunately, Mr. Moore has just found himself in hot water for the past couple of weeks over allegations. I think there are now five or six in total where he may have had relations or at least the, the, the issue is possibly sexual harassment with young girls, in most cases teenage girls, which means they were underage. Roy Moore has obviously denied these things from hell, you know, from hell or high water, but at the same time, the problem is that in more recent cases, the first two examples of allegations were a little mixed. The last three or four have actually had more of an impact, including this one person very lately who claimed that, you know, that Roy Moore tried to do things with her, hit on her, etc. Moore denied it, claimed he had never heard of her before, and then suddenly she produces a yearbook, mm. which is signed by Roy Moore, yeah. which is basically, I wouldn't say necessarily sexually implicit, but certainly had a theme that, well, you wouldn't necessarily assign a yearbook with. And his camp, is, and his camp says, says that that's forged. Yes. Now, he says it's forged. Some handwriting experts have looked at it and compared it to other signatures by Roy Moore when he, was a, when he was a justice, and they seem to find some similarities. Let's say that there's a bit of a, dar- a haze over it, a dark cloud over it, and we don't know for sure. The one key here is that all of the allegations against Roy Moore are just that, allegations and unproven. But you're right, Jeff Sessions' name has been sort of brought up, among some others, including Mr. Savage, who I mentioned earlier, as possible write-in candidates for Republicans in Alabama if they just can't bring themselves to vote for Roy Moore and don't want to vote for the Democratic candidate either. Will it happen in the end? I could see some people writing in Jeff Sessions either you know, because they feel that he would be the best candidate to go back to the Senate or just the only person who can resolve this mess. Hmm. But in the end, ultimately, is it going to make a difference? No. I think that Roy Moore will obviously, A, remain the candidate, even though a lot of Republicans, including Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, and even Fox News host Sean Handy are now starting to abandon him. So with this in mind, Moore's chances of winning are starting to diminish. But look, the, the history of certain states, including Alabama, is to reject a lot of elitist views and elite thoughts. Mm. They may think, well, look, the Washington elites are trying to interfere in our election. Yeah. We'll show them. 
and who knows, Roy Moore may end up winning. Anyway. That that being said, like you said, when Fox starts changing the tide a little bit, uh, it'll be interesting to see who wins that tug of war. What about Steve Bannon, who is obviously supported more, uh, yes. and and was at odds with with Trump over the candidate here? Yep. Uh, Trump supporting the other. Uh, what does this do to his brand if this if these accusations continue? Well, I don't know if it does a lot to his brand. I think it'll just anger Steve Bannon even more. Steve Steve Bannon, who after leaving to the White House, went back to Breitbart News, where he was originally from when people, most people probably first heard of him, and became CEO of the organization again. They've been running their various campaigns, either supportive of the Trump administration or against it, at least in this case anyway, where, as I said before, the president actually supported Luther Savage, versus Mr. Bannon, who actually supported uh, Roy Moore. I don't think anything will necessarily happen to his brand, Scott, because Breitbart News is more than just one senatorial race. But at the same time, it will be a little bit of a body blow for Steve Bannon. He'll obviously be furious that a lot of Republicans, including Republicans that he's either worked with in the past, may have respected, or likely didn't respect, came out against his choice for the Alabama Senate race, and it may motivate him to make, shall we say, angrier statements against the Republicans and possibly turn up the heat a little bit against President Donald Trump, who, even though obviously he still likes and gets along with, it is quite clear, at least since Mr. Bannon has gone back to Breitbart News, that Donald Trump is not necessarily in lockstep with everything that Breitbart News supports about immigration, foreign policy, or even just the rates of taxation of Americans. For that reason, if Moore loses in a few days' time, it may irritate Bannon and Breitbart News enough to start a real huge campaign against the GOP, that being the Republican Party, or they may lick their wounds for a couple days and move forward. We'll see what happens. Does Bannon still have a a lot of influence, or does he have the influence over Trump that many think he does? I don't think he necessarily has the influence he once had over Donald Trump uh, for a couple of reasons. One, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of discussion, I think you and I even talked about it a few months ago, where Steve Bannon was actually losing power to some degree mm-hmm. because people were quite frustrated with some of his positions, including, you know, he had a curious, he's always had curious positions about starting international wars and conflicts, which he tends to be against. Plus, he's also a fellow who believes in raising taxes on both the middle class and the wealthy, which is not something that sells very well with most American conservatives and, quite frankly, the Republican Party and Donald Trump. For that reason, I think Bannon's popularity in the White House took a major hit, and he felt more and more isolated as time went along. This doesn't mean that Steve Bannon and Donald Trump are not in touch. Based on many accounts in the U.S. media, they still do speak from time to time and appear to be on relatively good terms. But the influence that Bannon had over Trump, let's say about a year ago, no longer exists today. So if Steve Bannon gets all angry and furious based on the fact that Roy Moore loses and he starts lashing out against Donald Trump, yes, the president won't be pleased, but I don't think it will affect him quite the same way it would have in 2016. All right, lots of chatter of impeachment. Again, House Democrats starting the proceedings. Politics, or is there something valid here? 
nah, the politics. Yeah. It's four left-wing, very left-wing Democrats trying to stir up the pot a little bit. This is a Republican-controlled Congress in general. Remember, even if Roy Moore loses in a few, day, in a few mm. days' time, yeah. the Republicans control the Senate, they control the House of Reps, they control the White House, they control the judiciary, which doesn't have anything to do with this particular equation. There is nothing the Democrats can do. All they're basically doing is a few... You know, a few wayward members who are sort of on the fringe of their party are, try, as I said, are trying to stir up the pot, trying to see what will happen if they can cause a little bit of commotion. They'll have some news coverage for a few days. They've already had a press conference where they talk that they're doing this for the, the good of the country rather than the good of their own egos. It's what about the good? Of, what about the good of their party? You know, at what point do people go? You know what? Let's just move on, and you bring us, uh, you know, the two version of the Democratic Party, and, and see what you can do against Trump in the next election. Should they not be focusing on that instead I, of this stuff? I fully agree, and they should have a long time ago. I wish both parties, quite frankly, Scott, would just stop talking about last year's election. It's over. It's done. And I don't care whether you like the result or not. And you can keep talking about, and people keep talking about Russia meddling all they want. Again, and I keep repeating this, the FBI and the CIA have both agreed that Russia attempted to meddle in the election, but they have also both said that this did not change the election result. Mm -hmm. Ergo, A does not wash the hands of B. There is no connection. Please stop it. Donald Trump won this election. That is the end of it. They are not going to overturn it. Nothing is going to change about it. This stupid little impeachment process is going to be done with pretty fast because Republicans don't want to address it, and they don't think it's all that interesting. Trust me, there are lots of Republicans, there are lots of conservatives, libertarians in the United States who are fed up with Donald Trump. There are equally a number of them who actually like the man. They want to move on. They want to move forward. I think that the Democrats would be wise to get past this point and just accept the fact that right now things are looking a little bit better for them based on what happened recently in um, Virginia mm-hmm. and elsewhere. They obviously are finally starting to gain a little bit more momentum. They're still struggling in the mindset of a lot of Americans. They're at their lowest popularity point in more than a quarter century. But they have an extremely unpopular president and a less than popular Republican Party to deal with. Move forward. Stop looking backward. You know, your shadows can follow you as much as you want. In the end, ultimately, Donald Trump is the president of the United States, whether you like it or not. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've had this conversation before. A new study shows that out of all the tobacco products consumed in the province, 40% of them are illegal. Contraband, the level of usage usage in Hamilton, rose from 25% to 30%, just over 30% this year. To talk about all of this, David Bryans is with us, CEO of the Ontario Convenience Store Association. He's on the line with us now. David, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Great. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this new study. What does it reveal, David? Well, once again, and unfortunately, it reveals that contraband tobacco continues to grow in every community in Ontario. So we have swept hospitals, malls, casinos, government buildings, and high schools, and contraband tobacco has gone from 32 to 37 percent, or a 13 percent increase year over year. I thought we were getting a handle on this. We were talking about models that Quebec had used and such, and that similar uh, methods were coming here. I thought we were starting to get a handle on this. 
Well, I was hoping and I was ambitious that we'd get a handle, but here we are year after year showing more growth. And a lot of that's driven, by the way, um, by uh, in the last year, the Ontario government's added $4 a carton to the legal market. They banned menthol, which some smokers actually, adult smokers actually enjoyed. And what that's done is created another um, where can I get cheaper products in every community. So here's a product that has no advertising, no marketing, no billboards, no newspaper ads. And now almost 40% of all smokers know how to source it and get it so that they can satisfy their daily needs. Why is this becoming an issue for you now? I mean, clearly this is something you guys have talked about forever. What concerns you now? Well, it's a huge issue for us now because small business is suffering badly. Stores are starting to close. And it's driven by three issues today, contraband tobacco, obviously, keeping in mind that tobacco itself is a sunset category. So volumes will go down naturally to 1% or 2% a year, which you can adjust to, but not by 40%. So secondly, punishing hydro rates, which even all of us experience even at home. And then soon to be 32% increase in labor costs uh, uh, starting January 1st. We have the first move on it. And all of that combined is the straw that's going to break the camel's back for small business in many communities where we will see hundreds of stores closing because they just can't afford all of this. Uh, where is use of contraband highest? Um, what can you tell us from, from the geographics? Sure. So anything north of Barrie, Ontario, in the nor- and north uh, is 60% plus now in contraband. But if you want to look at highlights, you look at uh, Sault Ste. Marie is now at 87%. So 87 of every 100 cigarettes consumed are now contraband. And if you then slide over to North Bay, it's 75% of every um, uh, 75 out of every 100 cigarettes consumed are illegal. So it just shows you we are now moving into what we call epidemic levels where in certain communities, the more you ignore it, the closer proximity to to reserves, the higher the growth we're seeing in contraband. So where is it coming from? Obviously, most of it, if not all of it, is coming from uh, reserves where there's, uh, the RCMP have declared there's about 50 different illegal or not illegal, we could call them illegal, they might call them legal, uh, tobacco production facilities. So when you start having production facilities popping up in people's garages and everywhere on reserves, you know you now have a problem. And it's also, uh, the RCMP have declared that there's upwards to 200 organized criminal gangs delivering contraband throughout Ontario, and that is what's funding their activities. And and even uh, they have referred to ISIS as also being part of it and getting the money through con- contraband tobacco because it's cash. Uh, so again, I, we've talked about this many times, Dave. I thought that we were gaining on this, especially when uh, the product got off the reserve and made it into the general public. I was hoping it would, but when you look at real numbers, if you walked into a convenience store today in Hamilton, you'd pay $14 for a pack of cigarettes. If you went out to Six Nations, you'd pay 3 to $5 for a pack. So whenever you allow people to avoid taxation, obviously human nature is going to be, that's sure. what I want to do. And, and that's just, and then by word of mouth, they tell each other. So and now this government has planned for early next year another $4 a carton in the legal market and no real controls for the illegal market. How are we ever going to correct something if you keep adding fuel to that fire? Are we, do, you, do you expect the same problem to arise with illegal contraband once we get into the, medical, or the uh, recreational marijuana business? Sure. I have a strong position that if you can't control or you continue to ignore the illegal production in Ontario of all these factories... And, and facilities, then how are you ever going to control illegal marijuana? Because some of those people will see that as an advantage because the distribution network already exists to move product around the province and nobody 
as the political will to fix that. Is the government connecting the dots here? Are they seeing this? I mean, if you've got a contraband rate somewhere between 30 and 80 percent for cigarettes that have been around forever, um, how can they not look at that when this? Well, I think because we're in an election year and because um, the federal government has said we're going to have marijuana July 1st, 218, I believe that everybody's focused on how to position marijuana in Ontario. We all know that 50 government retail monopoly stores will not satisfy uh, the demand for marijuana in the future. Mm. So therefore, we can assume that other people understand that too and will start filling the gaps. Because today there's 200,000 medicinal marijuana users in Canada, and then July 1st, next year, there's a potential of 13 million marijuana users. Uh when you hear the government talk about uh, recreational marijuana, they will say pricing has to be uh, competitive with what it is on the black market in order to do all of the things that they say, which is regulated, keep it out of the hands of kids, this sort of thing. But why? how can they do that with pot when they can't do that with cigarettes? Well, because c- cigarettes is a cash cow. This government makes over a billion dollars a year on tobacco. And if they were, I would, I agree with what they said with marijuana. I wish they would bring the taxes in the line for cigarettes so we could close the production. In the 90s, taxes were brought into line and everything closed up on us. But as you inch up the taxes on tobacco, you also frustrate the uh, addicted consumer here in Ontario, and therefore they look for new sources. So I believe the government will start low. Uh, I don't think they can fill the gap of demand anyhow. It's like only having 50 cigarette stores in Ontario. I'm sure by then that would be a heyday for people delivering to your community to get Mm. tobacco to you. So, and I actually believe there'll be more marijuana users in Ontario than there ever will be tobacco users in Ontario. Well, is there any reason to believe that the same thing that's happening with cigarettes won't happen with, with marijuana? I mean, again, government has to be having this discussion. Well, it'll be rhetoric, government rhetoric, because that's what they've done with tobacco. Every year I show them these numbers. You think they'd want to sit down and say, how about we do an educational campaign together? How about we work on this? How about increasing the OPP task force from four people to 30 people like we have in Quebec and give them some resources? The OPP will tell you it's very frustrating. It's it's like playing whack-a-mole in Ontario. You find one big bust and five more pop up, but you only have four people and no resources. How do you explain the government's lack of interest, though, when they are losing lots of money in all of this? Well, I believe it's easy for a politician going into an election year to not get into any discussion or any uh, uh, vision or, or direction on Aboriginal affairs. Let's not rock the boat over there. We've got enough issues without having, uh, you know, a blockade or a riot on our hands because we wanted to slow down cigarette sales off the reserve. Uh, that being said, there's certain treaty rights and such in regard to tobacco and such. That, that, that's what uh, natives will say. Yep. It, what about marijuana? This is a completely different scenario, is it not? Is there any reason to think that just because this is done with tobacco that now it's acceptable with marijuana? I mean, is any of that? I mean, you know, I can understand uh, sort of the... Um, you know, loosening of the rules for tobacco, but but marijuana would be completely different, would it not? So far, it seems, but they haven't addressed that. So, secondly, I'm quite interested in, and always concerned because we're under the watchful eye of the 36 public health units, and we work well with them to make sure that tobacco is handled properly in Ontario by our members. But you don't hear any outcry about anything to do with marijuana, from consumption to what's going on from the health advocates in the province. So. 
I'm not sure why all of this, unless there's this agreement, let's just let this thing flow and see where it goes, and then we'll make, make decisions. But if they treat marijuana the way they've treated legal and illegal tobacco, we're in for a very tough road here in Ontario. Uh, how high do you think these numbers have to get before government takes notice? Like, again, you're, you're saying uh, now in uh, Ontario that we're sitting somewhere between um, 20 and, and 30 per, or 25 and 30 percent, uh, other areas as high as as 80 percent. How high does the average number have to get? It's nearly 40 percent in Ontario now. How high does that number have to get before uh, government starts noticing? Does it get up over 50 percent? Well, let's put it this way. They already notice. I mean, every meeting I go to, you know, most people look away because no one has the political will to fix this or even address it because easier to ignore than to engage. It, you know, and it does hurt small business, but because we're diversified, they really don't care, right? Uh, because we're going into an election, and therefore, we don't want to discuss the issues around the legal production, shipment of contraband tobacco around the province. There are many ways to correct it. They know that Quebec has a model. It's only 15%. They don't even want to look at that today. It's let's forget about it because we have an election. Maybe, and hopefully the next government, whoever it may be, uh, next June uh, 8th, after the June 7th election, will say let's have a discussion about how do we slow this down and make this a compliant society. Why does this just seem to be an Ontario problem? It's because the production... Uh, remember in the 90s we had a problem where it got to 48%, but that was coming out of the U.S. Right. This is because... There are 50 illegal factories, or 50 factories, many of them illegal, not even licensed, located on reserves, and nobody wants to discuss that. Right. Uh, now in Canada, there are two domestic factories, I don't know if you know that, making legal cigarettes, and 50 illegal, so you can see where the shift's going. Huh. More and more people, and then add in, uh, you know, the reserve there in Six Nations just behind you. Um, you can also fill up your tank with gas and your HST avoidance. Yeah. You know, and people are racing to the reserves not only for gasoline, but fireworks and tobacco today. And it's, uh, it's very difficult, and it's, it's the, the bigger it gets, the harder it will be to control. So uh, is there re- reason to believe that, you know, if the producers are producing illegal tobacco, that they're going to get into the marijuana business? There could be some assumptions, uh, you know, because it's a very competitive market, right? I don't think... Everybody's getting rich making illegal cigarettes today because if you ever go on a reserve, it's full self-serve, it's hostesses sampling, it's everything that was banned after 1972 in Ontario. We are back to the 70s. It's called the Wild West of tobacco sales, right? And nobody wants to even look at that. You can send young people on the reserve, which I've done, and they'll gladly sell to them. So there's no rules. There's nothing that goes with a normal society of handling tobacco. And we also know that youth on reserve have a much higher consumption level of tobacco, and no one wants to address that as well. Uh, Do you think the government's thinking, well, we've got marijuana coming in. This is going to make us a great deal of money. Smoking's on the decline. We'll just leave this the way it is, and hopefully it'll all go away. I'm not sure. I think they, I, I, if I was guessing, I'm sure the government wishes there wasn't marijuana for the next election, showing its ugly face. Uh, because, I mean, June 7th's not far off, and July 1st isn't far off. And, all, and I think that's why we have it in another retail monopoly, rather than an open market, which you've, you may see in other provinces and other areas in the jurisdictions in North America. I think there's just a whole lot of we don't know what we're doing, and we don't know how to handle it. And with contraband, we don't want to address it. We want to hear about it, and thank you very much. 
but we have no plan to fix contraband tobacco before the next election. Do you think uh, in a few years that, that this will just be another syntax and like every election or every budget, sorry, there would be, you know, increase in alcohol and tobacco and now it'll be marijuana? I mean, and, yep. if that, and, and, and at what point do, again, do they have the same problem on their hands that they got with tobacco? Definitely. I mean, they're going to have to keep their eye on I mean, just today we saw ex-head of the RCMP now running marijuana companies, right? Yeah. So, so I, everyone's in this to say, how do I make money off of that market and not sure where that market's going? So, I mean, obviously the convenience store, our sector does not want marijuana from a safety and security. We're not ready. Yeah. If anything, our focus is still on, let's open up the beer and wine market and be mature about it mm-hmm. instead of dumping it in a few grocery stores to say we did, did our job and let's stop protecting the three foreign beer owners that we keep protecting. But um, those things, are, as you know, under this government, those ships have left the dock for now. So uh, the the Ontario Convenience Store Association isn't interested in getting into the uh, marijuana business? No. There's so many issues about safety, security, robbery, prevention, employee training. You you need a vault in every store to lock it up. What's the difference between that and and carrying cigarettes? Because cigarettes is a soft drug. Marijuana is a a real drug. And it's a drug of choice. And the later at night, the more people are going to want it, right? Hmm. And so I don't think that's the channel. We're not prepared at this time from a safety and security. We, you know, there's enough problems running a business 24 hours a day in every community without adding in something that could potentially uh, uh, be disastrous for the employees. So at this time, no, let, let's see where it goes. Let, let the government do their own thing with their 50 stores. I don't think that'll satisfy anybody. Uh, and we'll just uh, measure and watch, and maybe the day will come when there'll be a different direction on how things should operate. I would think, you know, if marijuana is such an easygoing product, why don't we just put beer and wine in every store, too, and really help small business? Well, there's my next question. Uh, obviously, you're not interested in, in the marijuana business at this point. Uh, you're more interested in, in getting uh, what we have in grocery stores, uh, beer and wine, whatever, in into uh, corner stores. Do you think that the fact that you're not taking a position on the cannabis issue means that there is a greater chance that you might get the other? Not under this government, no. If there's a change in government, then I think it'll be a different discussion and at least a, a, a door, an opportunity to have that discussion. Uh, are many corner stores interested in uh, supplying alcohol still? Definitely. And, that, and the reason, some aren't from a cultural area, right? right? But definitely because of the three factors, contraband tobacco is taking away from their business immensely, punishing hydro rates are really damaging their income, hmm. and then 32% labor costs are now going to come into effect in January, uh, each January, which there's no business, even your own radio station, couldn't afford a 32% increase in 11 months for all their employees. They'd close the doors. Hmm. And that's the challenge small business faces in every community. We're starting to see five or six stores closing a week right now as all the companies rationalize. Today we saw Loblaws announce they're closing 22 stores. Convenience stores are going to close. They're closing in communities, especially in rural Ontario, where we only service the market, but I think the straws breaking the camels back today. What about the recent tax release that, or relief that was just announced yesterday in regard to small business? Uh, we do appreciate it, but, you know, 1% of $50,000 is 500 That doesn't pay salaries. Uh, so we appreciate the government's, uh, you know, offer. Uh, we also appreciate to help us hire students at $1,000, uh, you know, uh, up front. But all of that doesn't help with the total cost of the of the 
all the punishing issues that have happened to us over the last year and a half. When you see uh, the research and, and surveys that you do in and around your business and tobacco and such, where do you predict we will be five years from now, both with tobacco and with marijuana? Well, I believe five years from now, tobacco uh, will still exist because it has existed for the last 50 years, even though everyone keeps saying it won't exist. Um, Hopefully, less and less people will smoke because they are moving to innovation and new products, which actually is supposedly or perceived to be safer. So I believe that somehow there'll still be a percentage of the population smoking. I hope we could correct contraband or at least minimize it. And let's take the chart and turn it the other way so I can congratulate them next year. And marijuana will continue to grow. Uh, 50 stores to 150 will not satisfy the market, so there will be a huge black market for it. Because keep in mind, today there's 200,000 medicinal marijuana users, and next July there'll be potentially 13 million Canadians wanting marijuana. So even production is going to be very difficult. David Bryans has been with us, CEO of the Ontario Convenience Store Association, of course, talking about their uh, latest study, which shows a contraband tobacco uh, even higher than in the past and shows no signs of slowing down. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Great. Thank you very much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.